This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Chris Columbus's 2001 film, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Did you know that Sorcerer's Stone was directed by Christopher Columbus, the Explorer? Oh, back in 1492? It's, I mean, <laughs> funny enough, like, the guy has the same name. I mean, so that he, guy was kind of a piece of shit, so it's weird yeah. that he would direct a movie that came out in 2001. It's a little odd. Yeah. Well, I mean, he got his hands on the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone, man. Live, live a long time. <laughs> there you go. Eternal youth. Wasn't, wasn't, didn't he? He was also not, looking for the Fountain of Youth. Was that Ponce de Leon or who was that? No, nah, Ponce de Leon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's our uh, our terrible history lesson for the week. <laughs> <laughs> this is Sorcerer's Stone, the film. We uh, we did the book last week, and I'm really excited to jump into the film because this is one of those movies that I've seen 100 times. Like realistically, I've probably seen it 65 times. Holy cow! So I, when watching it, I, I realized I hadn't seen it. I'd seen like a part of it, I think, but I hadn't seen it in years. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of it I didn't remember. So like, I knew that it happened because we just read the book and I've read the book twice now. But uh, the way it like looked on screen, I was like, this seems fresh to me as if I hadn't seen it. So I think even when I saw it the first time I actually watched it, I don't think I watched it very closely. I don't know. I just watched this movie endlessly. Like, you know, when you're a kid and you just had that movie, this was one of those for yeah. me. I just con- just constantly watching it. We talked about it on the last episode, but but for me, this is definitely in that time of my life where I wasn't into like kid stuff, and this was definitely a kid's movie. 2001, I would have been 16, so I would have been not into this sort of thing. Even though I love fantasy, it just wasn't really my, my deal, but uh, I did see it later, and I came around on it, and especially the later movies, because they got more like dark and adult, it really right. drew me in. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was saying like last week. I can't wait to get some of the, to some of the other stuff, because I think this is a good foundation for what comes later, and... The reason that this is great is it is a fun kid's story, but I mean, young adult story, but at the same time, as as it goes forward, it, you you age with the characters and you go through their lives. I think it's accurate to say this is this is like a kid's movie, though. Like, it definitely shifts more into that YA, like, more teenager thing, but like, mm-hmm. this movie is designed for the age of the prime of the protagonist like that's yeah. the age range that it's shooting for so chris columbus is the director and and since you say that he i think he was a major reason why it was like you say like a kids movie he was he's known for films like home alone mm. uh, mrs doubtfire he actually was a writer on gremlins i love home alone he he did the original home alone yep and cool. i actually think he did lost in new york also so oh you win some you lose some. yeah <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> two's fine i mean <laughs> Well, I mean, it's got a you know a, a Donald Trump appearance that uh, yeah, is pretty awful, but <laughs> so he was actually a writer also on uh, Gremlins and The Goonies. He was he helped write the screenplays for those. So and he was working like alongside Spielberg's company at that point. Oh, dude, I, I love Gremlins and Goonies. Both of those are fantastic. Yes, yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. 
Gremlins, though. I haven't seen Gremlins in a while. I gotta watch that again. It's it, like honestly, it's it's pretty campy, but it holds up. So I mean, you're talking about how it strikes you now. What? Let's just get general thoughts on what what your viewing was like. How did you enjoy it? Yeah. So uh, I watched it with my wife, who is someone who rewatches all of the Harry Potter movies like annually, if not more often than that. Um, and she's so she's seen it a million times. And at least she she likes to just turn it on and have it on, like movies like that. Lord of the Rings as well. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting with her because she's way more knowledgeable about it than I am, honestly. And so I I would say I would notice certain things and like ask certain questions, and she'd always have answers for me, and and like tell me, oh no, this is different from the book, and this because like sometimes it starts to blur in my head, like what was in the book and what was in the movie. Right. Um, so yeah, that was that was cool, and so she was right there watching it with me. Although I think she felt she went to bed before it was over because. Um, my other takeaway is that the movie is pretty dang long. You felt like it was long, really? Yeah, I watched the extended version, I guess, that's mm-hmm. um, got like seven more minutes of deleted scenes. Right. Um, so maybe that's why it felt longer. Maybe those seven minutes like could have gone. I don't know. But I, I didn't want to watch the like shortened version. I wanted to watch the full thing, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, I guess it, it did feel a little long to me. It felt like it dragged a little. But again, that's probably just the fact that it is v- not aimed at me, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that going on. And then the same thing we talked about in, in the book episode where the conceit of Snape being the bad guy is just so, like, not interesting to me. Now that I am fully in on it, this is my, I'm coming through this thing again and again and again. And that's kind of the main thrust of the plot is, oh, my God, Snape is so shady when I don't I just don't really get it. I think I think the interesting thing to like I said, I said in the last episode how I don't really sometimes I, I go back and forth on whether I buy certain things that he was doing, but I, I'm in the movie specifically, J.K. Rowling had given Alan Rickman some knowledge as to what his character was doing, why, what ultimately mm. was going to happen in the in the later books that weren't out. It's interesting to kind of look at the, look at it through that lens also. Like most of the movies just in, like I'm anticipating the next scene. I'm like, I know what's happening right now. I can like Caitlin just she was like, you got to stop saying the words before, like right as they say them. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah. it's one of those movies where it's like I can't it's like I've and I don't I'm not a person to talk through a movie but it's just like it's one of those movies where it's like I, it's every single line it seems like it's like this quotable thing that's like sh- like been an offshoot in my life and meant something it's Leviosa yeah not Leviosa <laughs> it's Leviosa not Leviosa <laughs> is that what it is Leviosa <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah that was you basically during the whole movie yeah, but I, I like, <laughs> at some point it stopped. But it's like I, I think that that is why I kind of look at it through different lenses now because it's like I almost just pick it apart now. If that makes sense, now I just look at it and I'm like as a film rather than yeah. being like this like journey that I go on. I do enjoy it still, but like I know it like the back of my hand, so it's kind of I don't know. It's a different experience. I feel like. Well, and I think I mean it's not even really fair to say this because they are so young. Uh, and honestly, I probably need to watch the next movie just to be sure I'm right about this. But I think this is the worst performances from the majority of our leads. It's because they're so young. But it, like honestly, a lot of the acting felt stiff from them. Um, and it felt very much like kids getting direction and saying, like, say this line. And they didn't necessarily know how to deliver it just right to where it really rang with that emotional truth. But, I mean, that's true for a lot of kid performances, though. So, like, honestly, you know... But, like, I, you compare it to, like, Stranger Things, where I think you could argue that I think the kid performances in that are stronger than what we get here. I, I think that there's sometimes that I, the kids really shine and they show that they're going to be great actors. And then there's other times, like you say, I could see some of the stuff that you're saying where it's, like, yeah. maybe something wasn't delivered exactly in the perfect way or something. But I do think that with that being said, there are the older cast prop this movie up. Like, they, sure. like, 
Dumbledore, Snape, McGonagall, all of them turn in like amazing performances. Absolutely. And you you kind of have to when, when your leads are, what is it, three 11-year-olds or whatever they were. Right. So let's get into Christopher Columbus. I talked about him a little bit, but I really do feel like he was, there is a lot of directors who were in the running and famously Spielberg was in the running. Did you know that? No. Wow. That would have been, that would have been something. He was going to direct it and I have a quote here. So he was in the running to direct, like he was going to be the guy, but eventually he moved on to, I believe he he went and made AI or finished AI for Kubrick and well, at least turned it into a film from Kubrick's work. And then at the time, to- at the time of, in, while he was in the running, he was quoted as saying it was the film was going to be a slam dunk. Quote: It's like depositing a billion dollars into your personal bank account. <laughs> That's what he said about the film. So it's just wow. like he knew that this was gold. Like he, he knew, knew that it was like this is this is it. Which I mean, that's crazy to have that kind of you know. I wonder if he foresight. felt that way about AI. I don't know. Well, I think that he <laughs> AI was special to him because it, because Kubrick was so important to him, and to like sure. you know like carry on that that story, I think was important to him. Right, and honestly, I I I feel like I like that movie more than the general consensus, critical consensus of that movie is. But it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'd be willing to watch it again and, and really make a judgment. Uh, I feel like Christopher Columbus is is now known as like this. He he makes a lot of really great kids films. Like he's he's gone on to make a lot of other films that have been really successful and. Uh, I just think there's there's one specific that I wanted to mention that it wasn't necessarily the most successful, but he he directed uh, Percy Jackson, which was which is also a YA novel, which also could have been massive, but I think it was like somewhat in the shadow of this Harry of the Harry Potter phenomenon. So it was like kind sure. of trying to to cash in on the same success and a potential thing we could cover because based off of based off of a series. So and I've heard the series I've heard the series is great, and I yeah, I, I don't even too. think I've ever seen the first movie all the way through. I haven't seen it at all. So yeah, if you guys want that, let us know. <laughs> yeah, let us know. The other directors who were notably in the running after Spielberg was gone were Chris Chris Columbus, uh, Terry Gillum, who is oh like, yeah, and I, that was J.K. J.K. Rowling's first choice. Wow, that would have been a very different film too. Oh yeah, <laughs> that would have been a really different film. <laughs> uh, Mike Newell was in the running, who would later direct Goblet of Fire. He would later direct oh, another okay. Harry Potter film. Uh, Jonathan Dem. Alan Parker, Wolfgang Peterson, Rob Reiner, Ivan Reitman, Tim Robbins, M. Night Shyamalan, and Peter Weir. So there's a lot of names in there. <laughs> yeah. I know half of them, maybe. <laughs> or I probably know more than I think. I just don't know that. Right. Know that I well, know a lot that. of them were like had smash hits in like the late 90s, like early 2000s area. And so like, this seems I think like it was a big movie. Like they knew it was going to be a big movie. I think so. I think that that they pretty much had it figured out at this point. Well, I think by 2001, it probably was already a like selling like gangbusters the books, yeah. you know, at that point. So they probably could anticipate from that this is going to mm-hmm. do really well. Chris Columbus was a huge part of. I, apparently, he's really great at working with with kids. Uh, really great at like crafting these wholesome, magical stories that that a lot of kids respond to. And uh, I think another huge part of it is that he was really, really, really willing to collaborate with J.K. Rowling. And she she, I think, had it written in her contract kind of that in the like, even though she was she was selling off the rights to her books, she would still have a lot of input. And that's incredibly rare if that's true. So most of the time they do not want the author on set. You might come you might come visit it one time, but that's that's it. Well, I'm not sure that she necessarily was on set. I'm, I, I, she may have been. I'm sure she was a couple of times at least. But, but he would, he would go to her for any sort of thing, like, like added dialogue, um, anything that needed to, that he was going to add or take out. And she felt like 
they worked they collaborated together a lot a couple of things to note about jk rowling's involvement are she she in the script wrote the flashbacks where voldemort killed harry's parents which is cool because she was the only one who really knew what happened was what the producers felt like they were like she she could write this and have like let us basically know what how it went down and then the other thing is um chris columbus was going to add some dialogue to the film at one point and jk vetoed it because she knew how, like in an unreleased book it would compl- it would conflict with something that was going to happen in i think it was the fifth book at the time so he he kept going back to her basically and, and getting her okay for a lot of this stuff because they felt like the universe was going to continue on she had sold four i think four of the books so through that she she was basically making sure that everything stayed all the continuity was taken care of that's cool that they were they that they really cared about keeping continuity between the novels and the films because often that you know you see this in Game of Thrones where the 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 film adaptation is now its own thing with its own continuity and then the, it's separate from the books. Um, right. It seems like there was an effort made to keep them consistent at least somewhat. And I mean it's a it's a miracle that because the movie started when they did. If it wasn't J.K. Rowling and she didn't have it written up how she did, I feel like yeah. the movies easily could have passed her if it was a different author and well and sure yeah she, she was... kept on schedule she had a plan she executed it uh yeah that's definitely something you got to give her props for that's that's absolutely true yeah i mean i can't imagine how how different it would have been had the books passed her had the sorry had the films passed her yeah. but i mean with that i think we can get into talking a little bit about the cast and their characters and kind of i feel like we touched less on the characters and more on the plot in the book episode so Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, and Emma Watson play Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and mm-hmm. each of them has a different casting story. Like Daniel Radcliffe didn't really want the role. I think that he, there were auditions going on, but he met Chris Columbus randomly at like a play. There was like a producer who wanted to meet him, and they were just at a play watching the performance, and then they he really wanted him for the part and I guess it was kind of an accident and all of the auditions and everything didn't work out and I guess they went to Radcliffe and had him audition and he he just worked out for them and J.K. Rowling has approved of Radcliffe's casting stating that having seen his screen tests I don't think Chris Columbus could have made could have found a better Harry and Radcliffe was reportedly paid a million a million pounds for the film although he felt the fee was not that important so it's like I feel like they went for really grounded kids who could turn in good performances uh, and J.K. Rowling has, has said that like all of the th- the trio are too good looking for her books. Right, they're too good looking, and and Ron, I guess, really, uh, he really campaigned for the for the role. He he was like, he said that because of his ginger hair, he was a fan of the books, and because of his ginger hair and the fact that he was an actor, he felt like he could tr- he could play the part, and eventually he nailed it and and got the part. Emma Watson, uh, she was at a theater, she was taking theater classes, or she was in a theater school, and one of her teachers like basically went to a casting agent and said you should check her out and uh the pr- the producers were impressed by Watson's self-confidence and she outperformed the thousands of other girls who had applied. Well, and honestly, uh her performance stood out I think to me. It's maybe may- arguably the best of the mm-hmm. of the of the leads. Um and and honestly, they were all good. Um and and like I said, especially for their age. Um so it's hard for me to to really be critical. Uh, but yeah, I think she particularly st- stood out for me as being as being uh, quite strong. What's really crazy to think about with these films is just the fact that they, and we see this now where there's long contracts and stuff, but they cast these children and then had to hope that they worked out. Yeah. And then th- that these kids would carry on through their adulthood and become great actors. 
Any of them could yeah. have lost interest or, I mean, I'm sure there were contact contracts signed, but like the fact that basically there were a couple of recastings here and there, but everyone was pretty consistent through the whole, that's like, it's just a pure, it's a miracle. I don't think yeah. that you could replicate that. I don't think you could do it again. I've, I've come more and more to appreciate the, the weight of what you're putting on these kids when you cast them to something like, like this so young and how they're going to grow up. They're going to grow up like this now. Like you're changing people's lives irrevocably. Yeah. Radcliffe did. Radcliffe's parents didn't want him to take the role for a long time. It took them a long time to come around on it. Right. Yeah. No. It's. It's. You can't. You can't. You know, put that back in the box once it happens. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and they and they lucked out. It seems like they all turned. They all turned into you know great people from from everything I I, I understand. And, and yeah, that's the thing is like you hear a lot of child stars end up, you know, doing different things, and it seems like all of them have their head on pretty straight. And yeah. and it's just it's I, I can't believe that it all worked out as as nicely as it did it must just be the environment that they put these kids around and and really worked out for them but there's a lot of notable actors that i do want to shout out in this movie john cleese it plays nearly headless nick and i love john cleese because he's of monty python fame sure yeah nearly headless nick was fun and made me like the ghosts that otherwise i never really like like i i feel like i've always felt like they felt extraneous to the story like just like a like a flourish to make it seem interesting um, or make it something, and and in general, I don't I don't like them, but uh, but he's the exception. He, he I, I feel like his works pretty well. Right in this, I think in the first movie, it is just one of those things. Even in the book, where it's it's it might just be one of those things to make it more magical, and the fact that yeah. ghosts are are around, but uh, ghosts do come to play a big part, especially in the books, but also in the movies. Like Moaning Myrtle is a huge part of a lot of the books. Sure, in the movies. But yeah, I mean, John Cleese, Monty Python are legendary. And mm-hmm. like the fact that, like, I feel like JK was going around and just handpicking people that she loved and was like, I, and I know for a fact that she actually did this with um, uh, Robbie Coltrane, who played Hagrid. She handpicked Alan Rickman for Snape. And she also handpicked Maggie Smith for Minerva McGonagall. So she she pulled yeah. all three of them. But I mean, the amount of the amount of star power that's in this movie is is it's all British royalty in here. It's Warwick Davis is uh, plays Flitwick and he's famous for being wicked. And as he's an Ewok in Star Wars Return of the Jedi, he is also Willow in Willow. Yeah. And they got uh, they got Walter Frey in there, too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, as, and that's such, that I wasn't even going to mention him, but yeah, like he yeah. plays Filch, like which is a pre, he's a pretty intimidating groundskeeper. <laughs> he really uh, especially is, yeah. looking especially, back at him now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. If you know his his family, what his family does, what and, would he and, have and, done uh, to them if he caught them? <laughs> yeah. John Hurt is Ollivander, who and who I love from the super famous scene in Alien. He's the guy who gets chest bursted in Alien. Oh yeah. He's Ollivander, the wand uh, maker. Oh, I was like, who is Ollivander? Okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice, yeah. So like, even like smaller roles like that, um, and then of course Alan Rickman. I prefer to think of him as Hans the Snape Gruber. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) See, he's not that to me. He was he was Snape before he was Hans Gruber to me. Yeah, but not actually like in the timeline. <laughs> no, I see. Yeah. Um, no, but just uh, I mean specifically in the course of this podcast um, because we covered him last year for Die right. Hard, our Christmas movie, and you know just when he's talking, I just keep expecting him to say Mister McLean, you know, or whatever. Like he just <laughs> he sounds like he's about to say one of the lines from from Die Hard. So um, yeah, 
I mean, I love him. He's great. And he's great in this movie. He And honestly, of all the performances, his might be my favorite. Um, even though he's made to be, you know, possibly the villain and all that, he the, he just delivers on that role. When he comes, like, bounding into the classroom, he's immediately like, you know, yeah, what is it? It's like no funny business no, or whatever. No, he just, yeah, he says something about, um, I can't remember the exact line. I can't believe it. But basically he says no silly incantations or wand waving yeah. in this class. And Yeah. Yeah. I just love it. Like he, he's, he's that strict teacher. He plays it so well. And, you know, yeah, Hans Gruber is your, is your instructor is going to be pretty intimidating. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, we got to talk about Maggie Smith because she's incredible as McGonagall. Like mm. absolute, yeah. I wanted her as a teacher, even though she's so strict, I wanted her as a teacher so badly because it's just you can tell how much she cares about all of her students and stuff, and and she's she is so sharp and so funny in this movie. And that's funny because I feel like now it might be what I've seen later from her, but I feel like there's also a difference in my age. When I remember when I originally saw the movie, she felt very strict and like not super likable for the majority, with like occasional flashes of oh okay she's actually not bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas watching it this time, she just seemed like she was barely like like it, it felt like almost like she was she was putting on the strictness, even though she generally is like you know what I mean like super nice and warm. Well, it's like as adults, we can look at her and see that like she's like she's having a fun time with it at the end yeah. of the day. Like she's like she's strict to the children because I feel like there's a lot of little smiles and stuff that she that she has or like slight smiles that shows that she's not like actually upset when she's acting like she is and stuff like that. Right. That maybe I just didn't pick up on the first time. And then, of course, uh, uh, Dumbledore. This is the biggest. Yeah. I think this is the biggest one to talk about because people go back and forth. And, like, I don't know which Dumbledore you prefer. And I don't know if you want to say necessarily right now. But Richard Harris uh, was Dumbledore for Sorcerer's Stone and, and Chamber of Secrets. So, And I think that they're very different Dumbledores. So there's a lot of stuff to talk about there. But in this movie, I think he for, for what Richard Harris wanted to do as Albus Dumbledore... I don't know. It's it's he's so mysterious. He's I, I can't help but compare it to the to the other version of Dumbledore that we get later. But he's yeah. so so mysterious. Maybe a little more frail, but also like so quietly powerful. I like that quietly powerful. Um, I wish I had been able to see him in the third movie, at least. I mean, obviously, you wish he could have done them all. Not to say that the other the other Dumbledore didn't do a good job. Just just I I think I do prefer his his performance. Um, but I, I would have liked to see him in some of the like different, you know, other scenes and how he might've, how he might've well, carried I can, that. Yeah. It makes me think like for people who know the story, it just makes me think of if I, if I think of Richard Harris Dumbledore in like five or six, I, I just like, don't even know how he would have, how that role would have gone. Like it just, I think he would have done a great job, but it would have been such a different Dumbledore. Yeah, and 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 we're we're not saying it, but fa- famously he passed away. Right. Oh yeah. Sorry. There's there's actually a couple of people that I wanted to say. Um, obviously, Alan Rickman most recently was yeah. was a tough hit. He's an incredible actor and and was a great Snape. Yeah. R.I.P. For sure. We. I mean, and we love him. We love him on this podcast for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And John Hurt was was before that, yeah. I believe. And John yeah. Hurt. I mean, I knew him as Elevander, and then I saw him in a bunch of stuff. He was in Hellboy, but like fairly close to his death he he became one of the doctors within the lore of doctor who um so i mean he's been he was a doctor he was a wand maker in harry potter he was in the ship on alien he was you know what i mean like he did everything and he was he was a legend as well richard harris as we were just talking about passed away now he passed away between between the movies the second and third movie right 
Right. Yeah. I think he finished two and then he passed away soon after that. I don't even think two was out when he passed away. Wow. Yeah. He, he really did have like a venerable kind of wisdom to him that I always felt like wasn't quite as strong in the other performances. But that's something we'll probably need to talk about more when we get to book three and movie three. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot to say for sure. It, Down it, the road. which There's a different energy say. that's brought yeah. to Dumbledore is what I would say for now. Is, is, is Yeah, a, yeah, a, I agree with that. Just a different energy. And I think that I think that this performance, Richard Griff or sorry, Richard Harris's performance would, would probably start to be less mysterious because as we learn more about Dumbledore, we learn some stuff about him. So I don't know. Let's yeah. let's leave that there for now. We'll talk yeah. about that in our next Harry Potter episode. But last person I wanted to talk about that did pass away was Richard Griffiths. And this is this is uh, Vernon Dursley. He passed away after all of the movies were done. Oh, I didn't know that. I think he passed away in 2013. And I mean, wow. as I, I like, I always saw this guy as Dursley, Vernon Dursley, and I, you know, I hated him for years when I was a kid. I yeah, didn't. He's you awful know, in the movie. It's, it's hard to separate him his role when you're a kid. Um, and then I started to see him in other things um, as the years went by, and like I came to really like him as an actor. And then and then yeah, he passed away. Um, in like wow, so that's that's a, that's a lot in this movie. Yeah. That's 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 pretty awful. But I mean, they left behind a you know a wonderful piece of work and a piece of art, and this whole series you know is is iconic. So the you know their their art will live on. All right, well let's move on to happier happier areas. For one, I wanted to mention. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it now. Um, do you did you ever see or read the Polar Express? Uh, I think both. I think I read it. It's very short, right? Very short. Like so it's book. like a picture book, yeah. Yeah, kids picture saw, book. I think I read the book and I saw the, unfortunately saw the Tom Hanks okay. movie. So it's funny is I never saw the movie, um, but I grew up on that novel, or that novel, that <laughs> picture book. Um, that was like one of my favorites, one of my early favorite books that I actually had forgotten about until I watched this movie. And when they hop on the Hogwarts Express, I was like, why does this remind me of something so strongly? And then out of nowhere, it just like popped into my head, the Polar Express. And I was like looking, looking, I looked it up on Wikipedia. I was reading about it. The guy who wrote that book is the guy who also wrote Jumanji. Oh, I didn't originally. know that. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that's pretty cool. But then I was like, oh man, maybe this. So so anyway, I wanted to say that that could be a potential Christmas project for us. Maybe um, we might put it for, for a vote. Um, we have to come up with a few few options, but we were thinking about going to our Facebook page, uh, the Council of Inklings in, in particular, and probably putting a poll up at some point for what we're going to do for Christmas. Uh, but I was thinking that might be one of the options, and, and it might be interesting to like do a, maybe a combo book and book and, and film or something uh, episode could be could be fun. Yeah, I mean, I have thoughts about the movie. yeah, but it just I mean, it's also we talked about in the last episode that this project feels Christmassy to us. Mm-hmm. Um, especially and, and to me specifically, and this is probably part of the reason why, because this is also like the idea of going and getting on a, getting on a train and going to, like a magical area, and eventually you know meeting an, a venerable old man who who gives you things. Um, I mean, there's a lot. There's actually a lot of parallels there, and we see the Christmas scenes are so prominent in the in the film. Um, yeah, it just made me think of that, and it gave me that sort of like homey, warm feeling, like we talked about in the last episode, and and that's that's a strong part of this of this series for me, and and I wonder how much of it's tied up in that Polar Express connection, even hmm. subconsciously. Interesting. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody compare Polar Express and Harry Potter, but I mean, it'd be cool to to dig into it. You know, maybe that's a good uh, uncharted territory. Yeah, that's something. If we if we do end up covering it, we could we could talk about that in particular. 
All right, two more things before we get to plot here. I want to talk about the set because something that I think is really strong in this movie is the fact that they use a lot of practical sets and castles and cathedrals uh, in in the filming of this. So um, in order to give Hogwarts Castle an authentic look and feel, much of the film much of the filming was done at locations around England, including Christchurch, Oxford, Durham Cathedral, Gloucester Cathedral. I'm sure I said that wrong. <laughs> I'm and not going to correct you. <laughs> Alnwick Castle. In fact, the only sets that were built for Hogwarts were the Great Hall, the Grand Staircase, and the Gryffindor Common Room. In the later films, additional sets would be built for the various classrooms and other locations around Hogwarts. So a lot of it was shot on location. And it looked great. It looked amazing. Um, All all of the Hogwarts stuff, which is, I mean, starting from them, you know, coming up on the boats, you know, in the boats at night was was a really cool thing that I had forgotten about. Annalise says that that's like a big part of, of a lot of the later movies. They do that every time, but I had totally it's always yeah. And then to, <laughs> to, to, to speak on that, the fact that it's always, you see Hogwarts and then we get this rising score and the score is, is a huge part of this movie. And I think a huge part of the success of this, of this movie. Oh yeah. Great. A great score. And of course it's coming back around. How many times were we going to cover something that John Williams scored? <laughs> uh, right. He's absolutely, I mean, he's a living legend. We've talked about it every time, but he's shaped cinema scores for decades. He's been doing it. I mean, he just, he couldn't have more of an impact. I think he's probably one of the most famous of all time. He's got to be the most famous of all time. Um, and it's the score of this movie is is absolutely a huge part of that. Yeah. And if you get John Williams on, then yeah, you probably do know this is going to be big, right? Yeah. Every, it looks like people knew. I have to wonder if if it was a holdover from when Spielberg was going to direct. Like if John Williams oh, like got on board and then kind of, because he was famously, he always works with Spielberg almost always. So I I wonder if it's something where he felt like, oh, this is going to be successful and I have a lot to add to this and he wanted to kind of stick around even though Spielberg moved on. Is John Williams who did the Star Wars theme? Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Jaws. So George Lucas as well, yeah. George Lucas, yeah. Indiana Jones. It's crazy, man. (laughs) Everything. All right, let's get into some plot here. I'm I'm just going to go through it. We're going to talk about some differences. We've already touched on the plot a lot, but I think we need to talk more on, like, character interactions as we go. Yeah, and it'll give give us a springboard, at least, to which to to react and talk. Okay, so to start off with, there's a difference here. Albus Dumbledore, Minerva McGonagall, and Rubius Hagrid, professor... Well, Rubius Hagrid isn't... All right, this description says that he's he's not a professor. He's a groundskeeper and keeper of keys, so... Albus Dumbledore and Minerva McGonagall, professors of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, along with Rubius Hagrid, the groundskeeper, deliver a recently orphaned infant named Harry Potter to his only remaining relatives, the Dursleys. Uh, the book started with the Dursley day, Vernon Dursley's day yeah. of when when uh, Harry defeated Voldemort. Um, how do you feel? Yeah, about I think this is the better place. In, I, I don't know. I feel like this is probably the better place to start, but... I think for a movie, definitely the better, better place yeah. to start. I agree because it's like it's just like you're. This is so much more of a hook. Yeah. To me, it seems like it's cool to have the Muggle world slowly turn into the Wizard world, but for this, it's just like you get so much of the plot right here, and it's you're just this, um, when Dumbledore appears, he's he's Gandalf appearing out of the forest in the middle of like a almost a suburb, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he walks in and he opens up his little thing and he like takes the lights from the lampposts, you know, like so he demonstrates his magic, but he feels out of place in this world, right? And so you mm-hmm. immediately are raised all these questions, like what is he doing here? Like what what's going on? Why is this guy who just walked out of Lord of the Rings here? <laughs> um, so it's cool. It creates like an internal. Um, drama there, and then we see a cat transform into a person. So that's immediately also uh, quite of a quite a reveal. Yeah. So I don't know. It's cool. It's a it's a good hook, like you said. 
So you talked about the transformation. How did you feel about a lot of the CG and transformations? I think there's a lot of things to point to, but all in all, I mean, this movie came out in 2001. No, and, and for the most part, it looked it looked great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a couple of times where I'm thinking in particular, uh, I think it's Neville with his uh, trip around the <laughs> in, through the sky. Yep. Uh, uh, later, uh, that didn't quite look as good. Um, and some of that, you know, some of the some of the Quidditch stuff in general, but for the most part, it looked really solid. Chris Columbus said that he was unhappy with the CG; he felt like a lot of it was unfinished. So okay, kind of interesting to think about. Um, I think a lot yeah. of it, I maybe agree some with of you the monsters, like uh, like like Cerberus and stuff, or not Cerberus, whatever the uh, fluffy, fluffy. Or whatever yeah. the, uh, the three-headed dog definitely looked very CG. Um, mm-hmm. There's a few things like that I could see him maybe is specifically talking about. What's interesting is it actually won a BAFTA for special effects, even though. Really? With all that being said, yeah. So it's kind of interesting that, like, yeah. at the time he wasn't happy with it. It still pretty much holds up today, and it won. Yeah, after, and, so. and for the most part, it was it was fine. Like, there's a lot of times you'll see movies around this time that are glaring, mm-hmm. and you go, "Oh, that looks awful." Now, there's a couple times where it's like, and it's crazy to see nowadays when you see those PS2 looking graphics in a movie now. Yeah, it's yeah. almost inexcusable. But when you see it there, you it's pretty forgivable, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. So 10 years later, Harry has been battling a disjointed life with the Dursleys. After inadvertently causing an accident during a family trip to the zoo, Harry begins receiving unsolicited letters by owls. Let's talk about the the treatment. And like in the movie, it's 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 yeah. pretty crazy. A um, couple things that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before in any of my viewings is that the little cupboard, I never mm-hmm. realized that they were locking him in there. There's a lock on the door, and they're, like, bolting yeah. it shut every time. So it's not just that he lives down there. It's that they lock him in there a lot. And I, I believe there might be a line about that in the book. That's um, wild. Like, I, I never even thought that, that he was locked in there. I just thought that he would. Yeah, no, it's they're, it's absolutely child abuse. It's absolutely Crazy. happening. Yeah. Crazy. All right, uh, he starts getting, let's talk about the trip. I mean, it's just, like, getting the parcel tongue early without knowing what it is in the first movie is is. It's fun. I love that. Can I say I'm also really glad the snake didn't say adios to him? Yeah. That's <laughs> something like, I didn't thanks. I was not a big fan of in the book. <laughs> yeah. Thanks is uh, yeah. Why does that snake randomly speak Spanish when he was born in captivity? Like it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just a funny and they they really play up the the comedy i think chris chris columbus does a good job of doing that like rather yeah. than dudley just falling in and like the like petunia freaking out he like gets stuck the glass reappears and keeps him stuck in there that's hilarious yeah. it's yeah, so funny it was funny uh i did feel like the the letters the letter scene went on longer than i was expecting it to mm-hmm. um i i would have i would have thought they'd cut some of that for the film but but it went on for a while. <laughs> yeah, him trying to get like tr- like constantly. It's like not a montage of 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 Dur- like Vernon Dursley like ripping up letters and like finding ways to make sure the letters don't come and get him. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite things I've ever heard, just people people talking about it, is uh, people say the reason that Harry wasn't wasn't sorted into Ravenclaw was because he tried to reach up and grab a letter out of the air rather than <laughs> picking one up off the ground. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I got a shout out on Elisa, like literally pointed that out. She's like, that's the worst way to get one of those letters. Yeah. It's like, and it's like, it's like, stop trying to grab just one and shove them in your shirt. Shove them, just get one somehow, put it in your shoe. Like, I don't know, man, you figure out yeah. a way to read that letter. He's literally like standing on a hundred of them when he's doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But I will, that was the first shot. The first, I remember seeing 
uh, I don't even remember. It was like a, some sort of magazine or something back in the day when I was a child. The first still, the first anything I saw of a of a movie from Harry Potter was that was that shot, a picture of that shot from of him jumping up trying to grab the letters falling. Oh, and it's absolutely that. That's why it is that way. It right. was a, it was they it would look better on screen. Right after the Dursleys escape to an island to avoid any more letters, Hagrid reappears and informs Harry that he is actually a wizard and has been accepted into Hogwarts against the Dursleys' wishes. After taking Harry to Diagon Alley to buy his supplies for Hogwarts, including a wizard uniform, a wand, and a pet owl named Hedwig as a, as a birthday present, Hagrid informs him of his past. Harry is the son of two wizards, well, a witch and a wizard, who met their demise <laughs> by a killing curse at the hands of Lord Voldemort, a malevolent, all-powerful wizard. Harry, the only survivor in the chaos, thus becomes well-known in the wizarding world as the boy who lived. Yeah, so we don't learn about Voldemort for, until this point, whereas in the book, he's, like, in the opening chapter, I think his name gets dropped. Or Dumbledore, at least, says it very early on, because he, he, he doesn't want, you know, he's like, don't call him he who shall not be named, call him Voldemort. Right. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to move it a little bit, but, I, you know, it makes sense, I think, narratively for this movie. The Dr. Seuss-style architecture of uh, Diagon Alley, mm-hmm. uh, it's a little goofy to me. <laughs> I don't know, like, like it was weird. Uh, I, I, think really? I think it was like the bank or something. It was very like, yeah. like crooked and I love it just felt, stuff. and it was funny because it's like, I, that aesthetic isn't really carried through for a lot of the other stuff throughout all the, all the, all the books and movies. Yeah. Um, well, Diagon Alley, time, which, yeah, what's, yeah. Fun, what's funny about Diagon Alley and something that I didn't realize until much later uh, because of other Harry Potter fans, is it's di- like diagonally, like it's not Diagon Alley. It's like if you break it, if you put it together, it's diagonally. Like it's like right. if you're diagonal to something. So, so is that really... why, So that's why it's shaped that way. Maybe that has something to do with the the why it's so weird. And then later, like you know, in another book, we get Nocturne Alley, which nocturnally, like yeah. I'd never put those things together until you know. Interesting. And I've read and watched the movies millions of times. Oh, did you feel like Hagrid? Hagrid's uh, treatment of the Dursleys was different in the film versus the book. I felt like he was more intimidating in the in the movie for sure. I felt like he was less. He was a little more jolly in the books, and in the, in in the movie he was like legit scary. But then you felt like safe. You felt like Harry felt safe. Interesting, because uh, I didn't have a strong reaction either way. But uh, my wife, I think she felt the opposite. Really, I think she felt like he was being much kinder to them in the movie than he was in the book. Well, I guess as far as things that he says, I would, I think yeah. I would agree. But in terms of like the fact that he like bends a gun, I guess seeing him hulking through the door rather than just like reading about it is also a right. different thing. Well, and that, that shows you, um, we talk about this a lot in workshops and in, in such, um, you, the author really only comes about halfway and then the reader comes like comes the other half of the way and provides mm-hmm. a lot of the details in their mind's eye that you just don't have on the page. And so that can account for differences in two people reading the same scene and one saying like, oh, he's way more intimidating and scary in the book and versus someone else who maybe not, might not feel that way mm-hmm. because it depends on what you're bringing to the page and providing in your head, like how you picture that scene playing out and what tone you're ascribing to it that may or may not be on the actual text. So it's interesting to, to see kind of differences in that because I, I think it just comes down to that, like the part of Harry Potter that we, you write in your own head when you're reading the book. Mm-hmm. which is going to be unique to you every time. Yep. Uh, something I do want to talk about, just since we're taking a pause here, is the, I think there's the, a couple moments in this movie where we're just left to like kind of 
ponder what we've seen so far and like what's going through the character's head and that there's something that's added in the movie where he's like drawing the the happy birthday cake in the in the dirt with the score like the the sad somber score um and there's something about that that i've always really been drawn to like in this scene it's like he's although he's been through all this stuff he's still i don't know there's something there he he's like carrying on on his own it's 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 resiliency yeah it's it's he's he's able to sort of it's like a self-care moment where he's like, I feel like I need this and I'm going to do it myself since no one else yeah. is going to do it for me. And it's so it works so well with the fact that as soon as he blows the candles out, the door gets bashed in. I just think that was a cool addition. That was something yeah. different from the book. And then, of course, Dudley eating the damn cake. <laughs> yeah. Harry's then taken to King's Cross Station to board a train to the school where he meets two other students, Ron Weasley, whom he quickly befriends, and Hermione Granger, an intelligent witch born to muggle parents. After arriving at school, the students assemble in the Great Hall where Harry and all of the other first years are sorted by the sorting hat between four houses, Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, and Slytherin. Although the sorting hat considers placing Harry and Slytherin alongside Draco, he is placed into Gryffindor alongside Ron and Hermione. At Hogwarts, Harry begins learning magic and discovers more about his past and his parents. After recovering the remember-all of clumsy Gryffindor student Neville Longbottom, Harry is recruited by the Gryffindor's Quidditch team as a seeker, which is extremely rare for first-year students. So let's go back up to the train where everybody meets. The Polar Express. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Hogwarts slash Polar Express. It's probably repurposed, you know, different time of year. It's just they instead of blue, they painted it red. And there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and they definitely do a good job here with Hermione, kind of the bait and switch of like making her seem very unlikable in her introduction. Um, she seems very kind of snobby, like almost mean girly, um, the way she treats them, and 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 which makes you not like her. But it doesn't make you hate her. Which so that's mm-hmm. that right balance of like we start off not liking her, but then she goes through this arc with the audience of we see, especially when we see that she is kind of this over you know overachieving student who then gets picked on when we see her getting picked on and honestly from Ron um mm-hmm. and then he has to make it up to her and and so the the, the idea of bullying um uh, being a huge theme in this series and especially this first book I, I definitely buy into and and I like that it shows one of the characters we like being a bully but then apologizing and realizing that he's hurt somebody and I think that's a, that's a valuable lesson. Agreed. That's, that's something I like because it's it's realistic. It's definitely a more realistic depiction to think that Hermione comes in and she's so overzealous that, that it can be seen as annoying by certain people. But then people demonstrate their values in different ways and then can see like, you know, maybe somebody said something too quickly and judged somebody too quickly. But then the idea that they can come back around and be friends. I've always been a big fan of like how they met on the train and then like kind of how they became friends. And then it goes to, you know, it goes on to show how their friendship will follow through for the rest of the books too. I think that there's a lot to this first introduction. I agree with that. And and honestly, uh, Hermione was also being a bit of a bully in the way she was making fun of, you know, making fun of them, making fun of Ron for getting things wrong and and you know there is a that there is that is a kind of bullying as well so i i don't know that she was completely in the right all the way but um yeah it's it's nice to see them both sort of find a middle ground and i think she becomes a little bit less domineering um and and kind of condescending right and then he also learns to like respect the knowledge she brings and I like the uh, the kindness of Harry that we see. Like, this kid's poor. He's never had anything. And then he's just immediately willing to share it. 
he doesn't want to like hoard any sort of wealth or anything like that. He wants to share with Ron. He wants to have a friend. Um, when Hermione comes in, he's like Harry is nothing but nice to her. I feel like yeah. And uh, then early on, speaking of Harry, that just reminded me of a note I wanted to, to mention. He he, when he meets Draco, we see him stand up to him immediately. He immediately says, you know, you're the kind of you know he he kind of turns it on him and says, I know what kind of person I shouldn't be or you know around or whatever, and I can tell I can tell them when I meet them or whatever it is. And so and we can, that's something that does carry through with his character, and I think Radcliffe does well. Is I noticed like when Snape's being menacing, when other characters are saying things, Harry is always staring right at them. He's not shifty at all. He's not like looking at his feet. He's not looking at his hands. He's not looking away. He's always looking right at the person, whether it's an adult or not, and it's sort of almost a challenge. And so that's a very, I think, Gryffindor thing to be doing, and also a very, I think, I think that becomes an essential part to his character, right? Like that's his bravery that makes him Harry Potter. I like that. Yeah, I never really thought about the fact that yeah, he does. He never backs down to Snape. Right. Snape challenges him many times, and he always just kind of meets his eye and and doesn't back down. I like that. Yeah. So, and then you were talking about how, yeah, how the fact that he's a good, I feel like he always surrounds himself with the right type of people. Like he's a good judge of characters, like one of his strongest, like I think character traits throughout, throughout all the books. I wanted to call it a particular scene. I don't know if it is covered by what we just talked about, but there's, I think it's early on, maybe during even the sorting scene where Harry gets his first time where his scar starts to hurt. Mm -hmm. And it's when he looks over at Snape and Snape like catches his eye. And then all of a sudden he goes, ah, and he like touches his head. And the first time you watch that, like, you just feel like he's getting, you know, th- that going on from 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 Snape. But then on our re- review, you see that Quirrell is in the background of that scene. He's well, I think standing he's behind Snape. Yeah, I think he's like saying something to him. No, 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 because uh, maybe. But I know for a fact the other thing is that he's actually facing away. And so you actually see the back of Quirrell's head, which is where... Right. Voldemort's face is. Mm-hmm. So in that, he's actually staring, he's actually looking right at Voldemort. And that's why his his right. uh, scar scar hurts. So that's pretty, I thought that was pretty cool, like cleverly cleverly uh, framed Blocked, so, that that, so that that makes sense in the second viewing. Right. Yeah, I love I love the things that you, that you find. I mean, like I said, I just saw that lock for the first time. Like the fact that I had never like paid attention enough to realize that he, they were locking him repeatedly in that room. It's yeah. like you, you, there's just things that you can pick out of this movie. It's very rewatchable. But let's get to the Neville scene where uh, Harry jumps on the broom and he's immediately the best person on a broom ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it looks kind of wonky with their legs hanging off, by the way. I always felt like th- that something something wonky is that later when they, like a lot of the brooms end up having like foot pedal type things where you can put your feet while you're yeah, riding the brooms. And when their legs are just hanging off, it's like it's got to be hurting. It's gotta yeah. be. It's gotta be like really weird to have your legs hang off like that. Yeah, you're right. I didn't know that. Yeah, you're right. I think later on, I do remember they have some like some like places to put your feet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that would be tough. And, and then also, they don't seem to ride. Often, they don't ride like as tucked in on the hood as you would think. They're like they kind of sit on it more, which isn't really what you would want to do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think when we see them play Quidditch, like some of the more experienced people on brooms, and as Harry gets better, we see them like like you say, like tuck their legs up and like kind of lean in more. But yeah, I mean I, that that scene where he confronts Draco is kind of interesting because we get there's a scene in the book where they duel and I think like that's their duel that they don't need a second time where they go at, right. to each, to each other. I think it was enough in the film to just have this one showdown. Uh, so the the person who's instructing it, do you know the name of that professor? Madam Hooch. Yeah, Madam Hooch. She's got those like eyes that are. She's got some crazy like, cat contacts, eyes, right? right? Or yeah. something. <laughs> it's pretty She's wild. Some, yeah, some uh, goggles and, and uh, to, seems pretty. Um, 
I don't know, like uh, pretty hardcore. <laughs> she's heavy metal, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, she's heavy metal. In her spare time, she's a uh, she's got a sweet magical electric guitar. Yeah, I can totally see that. All right. So speaking of contacts, Harry Daniel Radcliffe. So Harry in the books has green eyes, and and Daniel Radcliffe does not. And it was something where. I guess something to bring up is that JK was very specific about the things that she was specific about. So she wanted there to be all English actors and she would make exceptions for other European actors along the way. Mostly in this movie, it's all English actors and some Irish, a few Irish here and there. And she would make more exceptions as other bo- other movies were made. But the fact that basically across the board, they were all British was something that was really important to her. And then also she wanted everything to be pretty close to what it should be so Hermione needs to have bushy hair and I, I don't think Emma Watson naturally had that bushy of hair so they had to do, make that happen for her and um, there's a famous story about how I guess Daniel Radcliffe didn't react well to the contacts they had him wearing like they were like very like I guess 2001 technology for contacts I don't know what it was like cause I don't wear mm-hmm. contacts but something about it w- didn't d- d- do well with him and he got, had like a lot of swelling and stuff so I guess they went to JK and they were like, look, the contacts, this is what he looks like with the contacts. But it really, like, he, it doesn't, like, it is how, how important is it? And JK was like, you know what? It's not that important. As long as he, as long as he um, looks like his mother, that's, that's what is important, I guess. Uh, and so, oh, like, I watched an interview recently where Daniel Radcliffe was, like, thanking JK Rowling. He was like, thank you so much for not making me wear those contacts because I would have died. <laughs> Uh, I did want to, uh, speaking of the cast, just reminds me that uh, where are the people of color in this film? Yeah, that's a, that was something that I think that... And I'm not the first to say that. It's been called right. out many times. but That's something that people have said for a long time, and I think JK regrets it, and she tried to incorporate more people of color as, as time went on. Yeah. it's it, I mean, and it's a glaring oversight. It's, if, if think, you want to even say oversight, it's, it's a mistake. Right. Yeah. I think Dean Thomas is the only person of color that I can think of. In this first movie, and he's just wow. another Gryffindor student. Oh, Lee Jordan. Yeah. Lee Jordan is the commentator for the. He's like calling oh, yeah, the yeah, game. Yeah. No, you're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah, but that's it's not. It's not. It's not even representative of the like British society. Even you know. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty egregious. We'll we'll track that as we go through the other movies and see if if they actually started to incorporate more because I think that they did. But I, well, and then so you, I'm sure you're more steeped in this than I am. But there's famously J.K. Rowling has come out later and said that she intended Hermione to be yeah to be Look, a person I, of color. I, I, Okay, so, so let's talk about some of these. Let's, 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 let's talk, talk about, about some that of these for a minute. <laughs> so, look, I love J.K. Rowling, and I think that it's really cool that she's continued to to give to feed people facts um, as time goes on from from what she intended and and add new lore to to Harry Potter. Um, but I do worry that sometimes she is venturing into the territory of kind of now in order to look better, saying yeah. certain things. And I I look I, if she did think that Hermione was was black the entire time that's that's yeah. great and that's cool but why didn't she why didn't they cast a, a, and, you know, and why wasn't it spelled out at least a little more clearly in the right. books like there's like one line that supports it that i that i've seen get trotted right. out but but it's not enough yeah honestly. and then there's also the the other thing that's definitely becoming full full canon now 
um, probably with the Fantastic Beast movies, but um, Dumbledore being gay is another thing yeah. that we can talk about. Because do I believe that Dumbledore as a character could be gay? Absolutely. And do I think that that would have been a great representation moment for her that she could have actually said in the book of, or at least like gave more of a hint towards? Yes. I think that if, yeah. if, if she felt that way when she was writing it, she should have she should have actually stated something. She doesn't have to say that Dumbledore is gay. She could just say... You know, and there are moments where people will point to and say, like, this is like, this seems like something. Is, you know, is, um, like, is Nicholas Flamel supposed to be like his partner or is that? So, okay, if you want to get into like the lore of how she explains everything, and I think this uh-huh. actually touches on a little bit of like Fantastic Beast stuff, there's a character named Grindelwald, and you talked yeah. about last episode uh, that she's come out now and said that it's Voldemort which she yeah. didn't correct in the movies either. Which, so it's like, why is she really saying it's Voldemort or was it like Voldemort all the time and she didn't correct them? You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I don't know. But anyway, so this comes back around to Grindelwald. I call him Grindelwald, but some people call him Gr- Grindelwald. Grindelwald mm-hmm. with like a V um, mm-hmm. sound. And he is a, he's basically the Voldemort before Voldemort. He is the, right. he was, but the thing is like when they were younger, Dumbledore and, and Grindelwald, were were close and they studied together and there were certain ambitions that Grindelwald had that that Dumbledore responded well to and together they were geniuses and they tried a lot of different things and so what the what's been said and what is now I think becoming canon is that Grindelwald didn't reciprocate the feelings but Dumbledore had feelings for for them and they were very close and they were closer than brothers um so it'll be interesting to see how it all gets added in in uh Crimes of Grindelwald that's about to come out, but yeah, look, man, out, I I feel like she soon. I feel like there were times that she just added things in, and I, I think that the Dumbledore being gay thing, she she I think that she actually did have that in mind, but I just wish that she had made it a little more clear. Um, yeah, there's a there's a whole like that's a whole episode almost you could devote to some of these things because it's like well intentioned in some ways but poorly done, and and then you also yeah it's a lot of retconning which can feel weird and you know, uh, maybe done for, is it done for the right reason? I don't know. Or is it just done to save face? You could argue either way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think we should leave some of that for also for future movies and future episodes, because I'm sure that's something we're going to, we're going to return to throughout. So while exploring the school one night, Harry and his friends discover a giant three headed dog named Fluffy in a restricted area of the school. Ron insults Hermione after being embarrassed by her in a charms class lesson with professor Flitwick causing Hermione to lock herself in the girls' bathroom. She is soon attacked by a troll, but Harry and Ron manage to There's save her. There's a troll in the dungeon. There's a troll in the dungeon. <laughs> Just thought you want to know. A great, great meme. That's <laughs> You can use it in like pretty much any Twitter thread if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Our second best troll fight we've covered on the, on the show. Is that fair to say? We had another troll fight? The cave troll fellowship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We did have the cave troll. <laughs> For a second, I thought you were t- like I. Th- I thought of the Hobbit for some reason. Like I thought of the oh, the like turning them to stone. Yeah. No. Uh. No. Yeah. The, the cave, cave troll. troll and, totally. Yeah. And I mean, and the... very very different fights. <laughs> yeah. Very different. <laughs> I couldn't help but think of it when I was watching it. I was like, this. You know, I was like comparing the two scenes. Do you love the Wingardium Leviosa? Is the uh, is the spell to save the day Leviosa. on that one? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just gonna have to correct you every time now. Even no matter how you say it, uh, uh, yeah, and then it dropping on his head. I mean, it was played for laughs, and he's kind of goofy. And after 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 such histrionics from the from Quirrell, uh, to have him be this like pretty silly thing, it's kind of funny. Like the whole like the whole school starts screaming and running, and it takes Dumbledore to like calm them all down. Um, yeah, and then yeah, he doesn't really seem that threatening to me. 
But on the other hand, he's holding Harry, and then he's trying to hit him like a fuck, like a pinata or whatever. But he and, can't. And um, Harry's pretty lucky that he was able to move out of the way from all those because I think he'd be dead if one of them connected. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's like it could be so deadly, and they did yeah. get really lucky. Um, but yeah, I think that there's something to be said going through the, all of these books for all of these dangerous situations that they're allowed to get get into, and you know maybe. It's like I have a feeling that like if Dumbledore really wanted to, he could just like he he, he could figure out where it is immediately, get there, and just was he hiding in the troll. corner with a with a visibility cloak? Is that what you're saying? I don't know. <laughs> I just feel like he kind of lets things play out a lot of the time. Yeah. I don't know. We we get like I think he's a very powerful wizard, and he if he wanted to, how could have ways of of knowing exactly where the troll was, taking it out before any students got in danger. But I think he there's something to be said for like letting them do their thing. So. Oh, and it's funny that you told me that Christopher or Chris Columbus did uh, Home Alone because there's a moment of head trauma around here that uh, would be pretty pretty awful. And and uh, so it's funny to know that he has a history of ignoring uh, pretty awful head trauma <laughs> in yeah. his films. Um, yeah. It's when Neville gets fro- like paralyzed and then he falls like a plank like right onto his back and head. Right. Yep. Um, like that would could possibly kill you. It's so harsh. Not to mention give you a huge concussion. Um, it, it would be very bad to fall like that. Um, but you know, hey, if you know if Home Alone uh, can get away with some of the things it gets away with, then uh, then we'll allow it for this one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, also around here is is the Quidditch match. So, I mean. What, what, how do you think this holds up? Because a lot of people at the time of the release of this movie felt like it was a, I mean, it is really a technical, a technical achievement. Uh, and like, I, how do you feel it holds up? And, and what do you think? I think it is, I think that I, I mean, because it's so visual, I think that a lot of the Quidditch matches are much better uh, in the movie, but I am glad that we don't get like four Quidditch matches per movie. Sure. Also. Uh, I mean, in general, I liked it. I, my observations were, were more just like a couple of things. For one, uh, the Slytherin team, they all look like either emo or like uh, the 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 main the main guy has like these horrible buck teeth, mm-hmm. um, and it's like it, it, this for, further underscores what we were talking about in the last episode. How much first off, this is all about Slytherin and and, and Gryffindor in this first movie. Uh, you know, they say Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw, but we almost don't see any of it. And then, uh, and then, yeah, like Slytherin is clearly the villains here, right? Like they, they, they make sure that you know these are the bad guys when, even when they're in the in the match itself, they all have a certain look to them, I guess, and they all have like a certain kind of like meanness well, to their faces, right? And, and I mean, not to stuff. mention the fact that they all play dirty, every single yeah, one they of all play dirty, dirty so exactly. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty rough. It's like they're I, like I, uh, what is what is that from? Uh, Karate Kid, they're uh, Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai, yeah. They're the fucking Cobra Kai, the the Quidditch team. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was that was one thing that you know was, I just thought was funny. But then the other, my other thought was like from a from a from a sports point of view, I feel like it'd be incredibly frustrating to play an entire game in which during the game there's this meta game going on, <laughs> and at any point in time, no matter how far ahead you are, and you've been scoring all these great goals, and you're you're having this awesome game, and all of a sudden the other team just uh, catches the golden snitch and you lose like that would be so incredibly frustrating (laughs) it would be a very frustrating game for sure but it is possible to catch the snitch and lose right but not in the movie at least in the way that the rules are outlined in the first movie they say that when you catch the golden snitch that team wins and they literally stop the game when harry does it right i think oh i mean i think i don't think that's true i think in the the book it's different so so you have to read through the lines i think but um 
when Harry catches the snitch, I think they say like 150 points to Gryffindor. It's because the snitch is worth 150 points. So most and of the time, Gryffindor win. wins. Right, Gryffindor <laughs> like in the wins. Same yeah. sentence. <laughs> most of the time, Gryffindor, like most of the time, you catch the snitch, you win. Period. That's just kind of how the game goes. But if your team sucks and they they score no points, and the other team scores 160, and then you catch the snitch, you'll still lose. I just feel like the I don't know. It just seems it's it's an interesting meta game to be having going on, right. especially the way it's laid out in the film. Well, it's one of those things where it's like I I I always think about like why don't they just have like all right, just put just put the two beaters and the keeper at goal, and then just have everybody else look for the snitch. And yeah. then tell Harry where it is, and then have him go catch the snitch. I wonder if there's if there's like rules about only one player being able to go after. It's the like snitch maybe or... maybe potentially the other teams like like beaters could hit bludgers. At, I I don't know, man. It's just one of those things where it's, I always felt like if everybody was looking for the snitch, and then like why not just signal? Why, why is everybody not always looking for the snitch? And if you know eight eyes are on it, or however many people are out there, do you there, know if anybody's ever tried to play this game? Now I know you can't really because it's no, so yeah, vertical. People, people but do, do people it, try yeah. and play play like I, a like a. There's Quidditch teams at like at campuses and stuff now all over the country. It's massive. I wonder how it holds up and, and how they deal with that problem because I feel like it, it is a problem. So they must have figured out some way to deal with it. Okay, so I, there's a person who is the snitch, and and okay. um, every but everybody else is playing their roles. I don't know how they would. I don't know how they sort out the bludger situation because it's like I don't know how you stop people from getting hurt. I know that you can play the game and there's like goal set up and there's chasers and keepers and everything, um, and then somebody I think somebody runs around as the snitch and, you, and people try to like the seekers try to catch the snitch. Interesting, huh? Yeah, if anybody's actually played, let us know how that how do, is it still 150 points? Does the game end when you catch the person? How does it, how does it work? And is it tackle? Is, there, is this like tackle football out there? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think so. Is there I like mean, a Troy Palomalu out there taking <laughs> people's heads off? <laughs> <laughs> Just spearing people. I feel like um, I think that you have to, the other thing to think about is you have to have a broom under like, so that's part of the rules is you have to have a broom. So like one oh, hand is so probably occupied. around with a broom? Okay. A broom. So now it just got a lot less uh, scary looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the children later find out Fluffy is guarding the Philosopher's Stone, an object that can be used to grant its owner immortality. Harry suspects that Potion's teacher and head of Slytherin House, Severus Snape, is trying to obtain the stone in order to return Voldemort to physical form. Hagrid accidentally reveals to the trio that Fluffy will fall asleep if played music. Harry, Ron, and Hermione decide that night to try and find the stone before Snape does, but discover that Fluffy is already asleep. Yeah, we get the, uh, I shouldn't have told you that joke a bunch of times. Yeah, in this movie, <laughs> I think it might be three, but it feels like more than three to me for some reason. I don't know. Did you count how many times he makes that same joke? I thought it was only two, but but where, where were? Do you remember where the three were? Uh no, I can't. I can't name them specifically, but I think it. I think it's probably three. Yeah. Each each kind of each time it gets like worse. It's like yeah. a, a, a bigger thing he's revealed. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's funny. I guess I'm just I'm just nitpicking, but it, I remember feeling like kind of a lot. This watch, this you know, it's like they keep they kept going back to that well. Yeah, it's funny that a lot of this ends up like on Hagrid's shoulders. Like a lot of it kind of comes back around. Like Dumbledore trusts yeah. Hagrid with his life, and yet like he still slips up. And but the, I think that's the thing about Dumbledore is he's willing to deal with those things when they come up, even if he did slip up. So. A couple of things that I did want to touch on um, are some differences that we haven't noted to this point. 
there are two there's a magical there's a history of magic teacher professor bins who's super boring and in, in the book this is all in the book and he's not in the movie professor bins and supposedly the story of him is that he he would come to teach every day and he was so bored or something like that or so on autopilot that he one day just like left his body in his bed and went to class as the ghost and he just kept teaching classes as a ghost um so he's not there he, he got the axe that's a great detail i love that <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. And then uh, Peeves, the poltergeist. Uh, people really do love Peeves in uh, in the books. In the movies, he never shows up. Is he in this first book? He's in the first book. Yeah. What does he do? He uh, at one point, like they, he like sees them or hears them or something when they're trying to sneak around, and he like goes and tries to call Filch and like get them to. Uh, and he like he he's scared. He's scared of the bloody Baron. So like at one point, Harry's in the invisibility cloak. And he like calls out as as the bloody Baron, and he's like, "Get out of here, Peeves." Mm, okay, I did notice when Harry's walking around in the invisibility cloak, and in this one, he's got his hand sticking out, holding the lantern. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like, what are it's, you doing? I think the <laughs> idea is that like, if anything, if anything was to see him, he could just like put it underneath the cloak, I guess. But yeah, it's pretty dumb <laughs> yes. to just have your hand out. I mean, it makes for a really cool shot and scene. It looks cool, which is clearly why they did it. Yeah. But it doesn't make a lot of sense. The effect logically. of the invisibility cloak, I've always assumed, I've never really looked into it, but it's just such a green screen effect. They just take it's like a green, screen, yeah. a green cloth and just throw it over him. And it works Absolutely. so well for what they want it to do, though. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, it does. I did love uh, when Snape turns and reaches towards him. That was oh, a cool yeah. part. Um, like he can just like sense him there. I think that I think that he only knows to reach out like that because... He probably knew that James, at some point he probably found out that James Potter, Harry's dad, had the invisibility cloak and knew to like, like, oh, I need to, like, if something is there invisibly, like, reach out and try to take the cloak off. Because not many people know about, I mean, people know about invisibility cloaks, but not a lot of people are going to be, like, reaching out to try to take one off. Because it's like Dumbledore says he could be invisible without a cloak or anything. So it's like to reach out and grab being your first instinct almost feels like it's like something from back when he used to try to catch James Potter doing stuff. Interesting. Another difference is Norbert. Uh, he's in the, he's in the movie, but the way that he's taken away is, is a lot different in the book. Um, Charlie Weasley comes to pick him up with his friends and that leads to a confrontation with Draco or kind of an, an encounter because he said he said like well sorry I'm sorry there's the there's the duel that they're supposed to have where he's like come duel me that's not in the movie and also the way that Norbert leaves is is Charlie Weasley takes him away and in the in the movie they just say that Dumbledore takes him away hmm. I didn't even catch that and then th- from that people are given detention Neville Malfoy Harry Hermione Ron everybody everybody's given detention in the book because of that and in the film they get it because Malfoy catches them in the hut with the dragon egg and then goes and tells McGonagall yeah and, and detention is go on an adventure with Hagrid in the in the woods so. right which is a, a pretty fun detention I guess <laughs> and then and then run into Voldemort <laughs> that scene I mean that was a horrifying scene for me when I was a kid like the the way that they did the unicorn blood and like the yeah. the ghostly flying shade I don't know what the hell it's supposed yeah, to be yeah 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 very uh, ring wraithy to, right. to make another Lord of the Rings reference. Yeah. Some interesting things to think about are just like, because we know how it all turns out, like Quirrell doing all of these things. Do you think Voldemort was on uh, Quirrell's head from the moment that we that we meet him in the book and in the movie? Yeah, I think so. I think he might um, he might be able to leave. Like he might be able to, to, like he might be there most of the time, but then he might be able to leave and go out into the forest and, and hunt the unicorns and then return. Is I mm-hmm. guess my suspicion, like that ghosty thing, like flies over to Quirrell's head and becomes part of it again. I feel like that ghost thing in the woods is Quirrell, like like drinking the blood of a unicorn oh, for Voldemort. It's... 
Okay. Yeah, I could see that too, maybe. But I wonder, I have always wondered when Voldemort got onto Quirrell's head. Like, I, I believe it's before all of any of the story happens that we see. But yeah. I think there's something in the book, and I can't recall right now, but it's basically just like uh, Quirrell failed him at one point, and then Voldemort wanted to keep a closer eye on him. So, and I can't remember exactly where that was, but maybe one of our listeners will will tell us. The last couple of things that are cut are uh, Mrs. Fig is is where Harry goes to stay when the Dursleys go out, which makes sense to cut that because it doesn't really play direct impact right now in the story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's I think that's all of the changes except for one other one that we're going to get to right now. Harry, Ron, and Hermione get past Fluffy and face a series of safeguards. These include surviving a deadly plant known as Devil Snare, a room filled with aggressive flying keys which bruise Harry, and a dangerous life-size game of chess that nearly kills Ron. After getting past the tasks, Harry discovers that it was Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher Professor Quirrell who was trying to claim the stone and that Snape was actually trying to protect Harry all along. Quirrell removes his turban and reveals a weak Voldemort living on the back of his head. Yeah, so I wanted to, to, to back up a little bit to the puzzles and say that first off, the key puzzle... It's kind of bullshit. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's not, like, as far as I can tell, they say the key that goes to this door must be old. And that's how they're able to pick out the key. And then they spot one that looks old and they say, go get that key. And that's the that's the solution to the puzzle, as far as I can tell. I think the solution that the kids find out is they're like, we must be looking for an old one. But then the kids see that one of the wings is broken. So it's like that one's been used. Was it broken? I thought it was just like old and decrepit. I'm pretty sure it has like a broken, like weird wing. Like it's been used before. Oh, okay. Well, I I, I thought it was just they were like, that one's old. Look at the way it's flying. It's old. But the idea that Quirrell had to go through and find that key that would match that door on a broomstick is pretty ridiculous. But even even so, they're not solving any sort of puzzle. They're just following. It's like a challenge. It's a challenge. It's not a puzzle, but yeah. Like, they have to get it still. Like, somebody has to be good at using a broom. And they all come after him. You know, they all chase after them. So it's yeah. kind of I would have thought, like, the point of having a thousand keys is you have to, there has to be some way of determining which one's the right one. And that has, that sh- should be the puzzle. Yeah. And there was no real puzzle around that. They just immediately go, that's the one. Let's go get it. Yeah. So, anyway, nitpicking again. But um, I thought that was that was kind of a, kind of not a very interesting puzzle. Now, there is interesting the uh, the, the the plant, the I forget what it's called. Devil's the snare. Devil snare that and now that replaces the potions from the book, right? No, it's the same thing. the The potions are not in the movie, but but Devil snare is in the book. Okay, so but okay, but it, it does both though because it shows Hermione being clever and she's the one right. who yeah, is able yeah. to in the in the movie that's Hermione's moment, yeah. Even though yeah, that's yeah. her that's her moment. So that's that is a big difference, and and um, I think it works better ultimately. I did like the potion scene was okay in the book, but ultimately, like it kind of feels like this was a better moment for her. Well, it feels to me very like um, you've chosen poorly, like very like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, where they have to like choose the goblet. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? How so? <laughs> it just feels like because they had to. F- There's like a bunch of potions, and they had to figure out which one was the one that would let oh, them. Oh no, no, I'm talking through. about the 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 plants scene. Oh, gotcha. What what were you saying? I was, say- I was saying I like the plant scene. I think it works better. Oh yeah, no, um, I think it works better too than than the book. Yeah. I think the in the book the thing that I don't like about the Devil Snare is that Ron says there's this line that I don't really like where he says like are you a witch or not? And like, she like, Hermione had like forgotten that she was a witch. I mean, I get it because she was a muggle for so long and she's very recently become a witch or mm. started practicing witchcraft. But like, I don't like that. Like it was a moment where she was like, I like, I like my Hermione very like on top of things. And like for her to be like in the, like, like in the, in the movie, she was very much on it. She was like, 
oh, I know what this is. It's Devil Snare. Relax. And then everybody doesn't relax. And then, well, I guess Harry does. And then she uses the the sunlight spell. Yeah, and, and I think there's a nice, what is it? It's, it's like a quicksand. They say something similar. Like, the more you struggle in quicksand, the faster you go down. Yeah. So there's, a, there's an interesting kind of similarity there. But that was cool. Um, I did want to say the, the chess scene reminded me of when I was in elementary school. I played a game of life-size chess. Uh, and I, I wish I could remember more about it, but uh, it was through this like gifted program I was a part of, and and we played this life size chess with a bunch of kids like were as the pieces. <laughs> That's and, cool, and man. I, I like that. And and then like someone was like controlling them and stuff. Um, and nice. it just reminded me of that. And it's funny because it would have been happening like, or I mean, no, I guess it, that would I would have been doing that before this movie came out. But yeah, interesting, right? That's cool. Speaking of that, just reminded me of something that I had happened as a kid. Um, you know, I was a huge Harry Potter fan and I was like, just everything about it. I was wanting to, you know, experience. And we were in, we were on vacation in like Utah and I was like, it was my ninth birthday and we were going skiing and, uh, we went to this, like somewhere near the lodge, there was like this, this place and they had a bunch of owls there. They had like an owlery type thing. And we went inside and, um, we talked to the owner and they talked about how like they, they're one of the only breeders and they, they do a lot of work with owls and then come to find out that the owl that's sitting on Privet Drive, the sign in the very beginning, the brown mm-hmm. owl that mm-hmm. flies, like it flies and basically towards where, where Dumbledore walks out of the woods. So it's right. all sitting on Privet Drive, very famous shot. Um, I got to hold that owl and meet that owl when I was on my ninth birthday and there's a picture somewhere. Nice. I'll try to dig it Did up. Did you get and, his autograph? I should have, yeah. I uh, I'll try to dig up that picture and post it post it online somewhere. That would be cool, yeah. On our Facebook group or something. But yeah, so moving on to the end here. Through an enchantment placed by Dumbledore, Harry finds himself in possession of the stone. Voldemort attempts to bargain the stone from Harry in exchange for bringing his parents back from the dead. But Harry refuses, causing Quirrell to attack. Harry kills Quirrell by burning his skin and reducing him to dust, after which Voldemort's spirit rises from Quirrell's ashes and passes through Harry, knocking him unconscious. Harry wakes up in the school's hospital wing with Dumbledore at his side. Dumbledore explains that the stone has been destroyed and that Ron and Hermione are safe. Dumbledore also reveals how Harry was able to defeat Quirrell. When Harry's mother died to save him, her death gave Harry a love-based protection against Voldemort. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are rewarded with house points for their heroic performance, tying tying them for first place with Slytherin. Dumbledore then awards 10 points to Neville, who had attempted to stop his friends, giving Gryffindor enough points to win the house cup. Harry returns home for the summer, happy to finally have a real home in Hogwarts. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's start at the let's start at the the Voldemort like the Quirrell death. Yeah. Uh, so first off, the Voldemort we see here doesn't look anything like the Voldemort we see later in the films. No. <laughs> he, I think no. he has a nose. Yeah, um, I think he does. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean, I can see they just hadn't cast him yet and hadn't really thought of how they wanted to present that character. So it's okay. It just does kind of stand out going back. The, the voice. I would say the voice is really scary. Really. Like, yeah off-putting voice that they were able to get um and it's in the effect of having a face on the back of your head is is pretty kind of like body horror almost yeah too so that's that's pretty uh how did you feel so i think in the book it's like more burning and and in this it's literally like turning to dust quarrel how did you feel yeah he he burnt he really burns up um yeah it's still it's it's you know the same effect i guess but he like crumbles into dust instead of like burning alive and dying but yeah and then and then voldemort jumps out and like burst through Harry, which always was like, that's crazy that he almost killed And that's Harry. how he gets knocked out, whereas I think in the book it was just more like he fainted or something. Yeah, and there's a, there's a shot that I've always, and this is a theory that I had from when I was way, way back as a kid, 
I always wondered if so Voldemort like like slams through Harry and Harry's holding this the sorcerer's stone and he falls and when he falls it's still in his hand. And I always wonder if the sorcerer's stone was able to like keep him alive or something or help him in some oh, way yeah. other than his mother's love. But that was just like a headcanon thing that I've always had. Yeah. Well, speaking of the stone, um it's this big crystal looking thing and um it looks interesting and it's it's the name of the book. Seems like it's really important. But then it just gets destroyed. And then that's it's like I don't know. It, it felt like anticlimactic in that sense too to name the book after the magical item that they're going after, which is a very, uh, you know, fantasy trip thing. You know, the the pursuit of some sort of magical item, um, which it feels like this sort of is. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of odd. It's like uh, it's almost like it's just the MacGuffin, right? It's it's the it's the thing. Well, it is. And, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and so in that sense, it's I guess it's not as important, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like uh, pointless in retrospect. I think the potential of the of the Sorcerer's Stone is what I think is cool about it. Like, I do agree that it's... I always thought that, like, there's got to be a way that they could give it to somebody or put it somewhere or do something with it to where Voldemort wouldn't be able to get to it. But I guess the only person who could really stop that from happening was probably Dumbledore. But why didn't he just destroy it? And Like, why didn't he destroy it originally? Like, yeah. it's weird. <laughs> If it was so dangerous, he could have just destroyed it at any time. I guess it's because it's tied to a friend of his that he didn't want to lose at all, if at all possible. And then it just basically they realize like the only way to really keep everybody safe and keep this out of Voldemort's hands is if Nicholas Flamel kind of goes off into the sunset. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Also, uh, uh, Dumbledore being there when Harry Potter wakes up is very, uh, this is my last time. This is my last one. You know what I'm going to say? It's Frodo waking up in Rivendell with Gandalf at his bedside. <laughs> yeah. It is. Like, it's a very similar scene. Well, it's like, I mean, it's like we know that J.K. was was influenced by by Tolkien. So maybe it's just. Yeah. And I'm not trying. I'm not trying to like shit on these scenes by saying that they're like, you know what I mean? I'm just drawing the comparison. Cause right. I think. No, I think it's, it's definitely there. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. So. All right. Let's get to the most. The, the thing that everybody hates. Uh, <laughs> Dumbledore just doesn't give a fuck about anybody but, but Gryffindor and Harry. And he just like changes the rules <laughs> and just like completely they were down hundred like a hundred and something points and uh and then neville i mean i like that neville like that's such a cool moment for neville but as far as everybody else just begin, being given like ridiculous points and stuff just so that like the gryffindor could win just feels i don't know especially in hindsight i'm yeah. sure jk is like damn it that like i should have found a better way to make that happen well they also don't point out in the film that Slytherin has won six years in a row like they do in the book yeah that's true um so it feels a lot more like you know, I don't know. There's a little bit of that, like, kind of give someone else a chance feeling in the book where you don't get any of that in the movie. Um, and, yeah, they it is kind of bullshit. And it, it does feel like Dumbledore just knows all, too, because he wasn't there when Neville did all that stuff, so he just knows about it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it does feel, it does feel like, pretty contrived, I guess, on his part. But, uh, you know, it, it works for this movie because Slytherin is the the villain's and so it's the one last thing at the end to make it very like feel good, happy is that Gryffindor also gets to win mm-hmm. because of all of the cool things that our main characters did. Yeah, and I mean we we like even, uh, Slytherin continues to be like I don't I honestly don't know if we get a great representation of a of a Slytherin who isn't in some way against our main characters throughout the books. I'm trying to like rack my brain. In this book or in any of the books, I, like in, in like I feel like in most of the books, uh, I guess there's there's some in passing, but I guess I just mean that like any character that's any has any significance to the story that's a Slytherin, I don't think that we ever get any of them that are like 
okay with Harry. Not like, not not villains. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess just towards Harry and their their trio at least. Right. No, and you're right. There's got to yeah. be there's got to be one, and I'm sure I'm wrong. Somebody will tell me, but it, like yeah. I, it's hard to think of it. So it's kind of it's kind of a bummer because it's like give some spread the love. <laughs> yeah, the villain, the villain house, but eh, somebody's gonna be the villain, so why not? <laughs> Before we finish up here, I just want to say, stick around to the end because we're going to talk about our Ilver Morning Houses. And if you don't know what that is, that's our American Wizarding School Houses. We've been sorted on Pottermore for those as well. Um, I admit that I'm not quite as versed in all of all of the American stuff. I have read the breakdown on Pottermore a couple times, but uh, I don't know all that much about it. And I know that it's being fleshed out in the movie, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I know nothing about it, so uh, you can hear. I'm going to share what mine is. I just got sorted, and then uh, James is going to tell me a little bit about what he knows. So as much as I don't want to leave Hogwarts yet, that's uh, I think that's going to do it for now. We will yeah, be back. We'll to, be back, though. We'll be back we'll to be Chamber back. of Secrets. But uh, when that is, yeah, so, no one knows. So, 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 so not for a while, though. We're going we're gonna to do Chamber of Secrets at some point in the future. I don't know. You know, Honestly, it could be pretty soon. Although the yeah. only thing I know for sh- sure is it's not next. Yeah. Next, we're doing Godfather. So uh, if you're if you're a fan of the movies, stick around. For I can't that. wait to do Godfather. Um, what I would say is that if people did want to hear, if people wanted to hear us do some some Chamber of Secrets, maybe check out um, check out our Facebook group, the Council of Inklings, and see if yeah. there's anything going on in there. Maybe maybe ask about it in there, show some interest. Or um, we actually have our Jukebox Hero uh, option as well on Patreon, which. Luke can explain better than I can. Yeah, I was just going to say, if someone really wants to force our hand, that's the way we've built in to do it. And that's, uh, you can get, you can get a token by being a, by a higher value patron, as far as like higher money value you're, you're contributing. And you can get that as one of your rewards is you can, you can literally force us to do a project. So, um, that'll be up there and, and that's a good way to say like, no, I want you to do this soon. <laughs> right. Um, which, which you can read all about the rules over on, uh, patreon.com forward slashing to film. So we're really excited. Uh, we actually got a new patron this week. Our name is Christina C. And we just wanted to say thank you so much for supporting us and, and helping this podcast continue. Yeah, thank you so much. I think we went to school together back in the past. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, so yeah, So, but thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm glad that you found the podcast and that you're enjoying it. If you wanted to connect with Ink to Film, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. Uh, we're really active on there, and like we've said a couple of times, we have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings where we do polls. We put information about upcoming uh, projects or upcoming adaptations that we're interested in, and we just try to engage with people in there as much as possible. Another way you can help out the podcast, it doesn't cost you any money at all, is leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. would be awesome, or on Stitcher or anywhere else you can leave them. If you wanted to leave us any feedback, you can leave that at inktofilm at gmail.com. We also wanted to thank Empire Sounds and Goblins from Mars for the use of our intro and outro music. Which I put the link in the uh, show notes, so if you want to go listen to it in full, it's it's really good. You should, you should yeah. totally check it out. I really like it for this project. We're definitely using it on, on all of our Harry Potter coverage, so look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. All right, so here we are, our Ilver Morny houses. Um, it still doesn't roll off the tongue quite like Hogwarts, but... Um, Ilver morning, yeah, it's, it really. It, there's some cool really lore doesn't. behind it. Um, it it's it, I don't know. It's very cool to go. I would I would recommend going to read it on on Pottermore and and learning about the American school and how it came up. Um, but yeah, I wanted to tell you about some of the houses. They have four houses as well. So so real quick, I, I I've been sorted, but I know nothing about them. Like I deliberately didn't read anything. So I'm I'm just gonna hear it from you, and then I'll then I'll share which one I am, and you can share which one you are. So there are four houses in Ilver morning, just like Hogwarts. Um, but they they're kind of different. They don't and there's not really one to one comparisons. It's not like if you're a Slytherin, you're a, 
of this. If you're a Ravenclaw, you're this. Right, but right. It, I think people try to draw parallels. So uh, the first one is Horned Serpent, which is represented by the bo- the mind. The Wampus is represented by the body. The Pukwudgie is represented by the heart. And the Thunderbird is represented by the soul. So there's a little bit more to it here. Um, oh. Basically... Horned Serpent favors scholars, Wampus warriors, Pukwudgie healers, and Thunderbird adventurers. Okay, then. I mean, with that being said, what is what is your house? I want to. I'm interested to hear what what additionally to your Ravenclaw you are. So it might surprise you. I, I got I got Wampus. Interesting. Uh, which you said was warriors. the body and yeah. the, the warriors. Yeah, I guess that's more in line with the sort of Gryffindor thing that uh, that I've been getting from from Pottermore and 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 I think it's maybe it is like uh, as I've gotten older I've been I feel like I've become a little bit more active like politically and like outspoken and trying not to be so passive like I feel like I often was mm-hmm. when I was younger um so maybe that is sort of that like uh fighting for for what's right sort of mentality maybe that's maybe that's why sometimes I I test as Gryffindor or here, Wampus. I don't know if that's is is, is Wampus like the Gryffindor house? Because it feels like it. So I mean, it's like it's like I I feel like you could say that, but at the same time, it's like interestingly enough, the Soul Thunderbird, which is what I am, are adventurers. So it's like it's like okay. I feel like that the both of those are Gryffindor, basically. Right. And, and I would have thought the mind would have been more as like my Ravenclaw leanings. I would have gone more that way, but I yeah. didn't. So so it's kind of interesting because it's like. Uh, like you said, I, I feel like in the last episode I didn't say enough about. I think that the like I mentioned how like I I am like definitely Gryffindor, but I have sh- started to incorporate other other parts of myself. Um, I think it, like it, it kind of in alternatively to what you said, I think that it, when I was younger I would steamroll people a little bit too much and not really think about others as much as I should be, and like there's a lot of that. Um, and I think that just as time has gone on, I've started to like have more. Like I really think about things before before I say them now, and I like you know what I mean. I feel like I, I feel like the Gryffindor in me is like I need to realize that I don't know. You can't just you can't just go around and and be so brash. Otherwise, people will just you know. There's right. a certain I don't know. I think it's just about growing up. Yeah, I think that as you grow up, you become maybe maybe multiple houses. But I still I still stand by the Gryffindor. Adventure, the adventurer spirit sounds almost like a Hufflepuff trait to me. So the Hufflepuff to me is. Um, a Hufflepuff to me is like caring about the well-being of others. So I'm saying uh, like wanderlust in the sense that like the hobbits get wanderlust in Lord of the Rings. Not an adventure in the sense of like I'm going to go out because I want to see some specific thing. But the sense of like I just want to see the world and like wander the and see the mountains again, Gandalf. You know, stuff like that. Like that feels very – and then like that – yeah, you know what I mean. That's and that's to me, hobbits that's are true, Hufflepuff yeah. too. So like, well, it's like it's so hard yeah. to draw these comparisons too, though, because it's like I think the issue is we don't know enough about the houses to really say how they compare. But it does sound like this. So the horned serpent sounds like a Ravenclaw. Right. The wampus sounds so it's the heart and and a warrior. So yeah, I think that is more of like courageous and Gryffindor. Wait, I thought wampus was the body. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Wampus the is other... the body. Yeah. Okay. It's the body and it's and yeah, it's a and warrior. What's the puck? Something puck is the is puck the heart? wedgie is a healer is the heart puck wedgie. Okay, so I was gonna say wampus is a pretty terrible name for anything, uh, but puck wedgie is pretty bad too. So <laughs> not as uh, not as. No, so I would say that I would say that something interesting here is the puck wedgie being a healer and being the heart. That seem that rings very Hufflepuff to me. Sure. Well, like you said, I, it, maybe they just they they deliberately, I'm sure, made it to where it wasn't just one to one because like right. otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, and uh, interesting. So, so to, to recap, you're a wampus, Ravenclaw, 
and I'm yeah. a I'm a Thunderbird Gryffindor. So there's that. You definitely flying. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. I want to get more of the Ilvermorny lore. So hopefully she writes like a like yeah. a short story or something. Like I mean this 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 short story is very interesting, yeah. but it reads more like history. I'd like to get like a story of somebody who attended cool. Ilvermorny. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I'll I'll read more about it. But uh, well, we can revisit this sort of stuff when we come back for Chamber of Secrets at some point in the future. But yeah, this has been a lot of fun, and I, hopefully you enjoyed it. And hopefully you will check out our other our other projects we've done, and and stick around for things we do in the future. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the Godfather here soon. So it's so good. All right, until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.